Welcome to this episode six podcast, Moving Into the Unknown. And together with Dale Dickens and Heidi Carroll, I'm Libby Murray, and I'm here to introduce today Zoran Kovic. And we're very privileged to have Zoran with us today. Zoran is actually the educational director of uh, the current Melbourne training. and we are very fortunate to be studying with uh, Zoran indeed. So Zoran has uh, the most extensive resume, so I will try to do you justice, Zoran. <laughs> and first, first and foremost, um, you know, I know that you have or, or did a, a Bachelor of Arts in Social Sciences and led on into a Bachelor of Arts in Dance. And there's been a a long road, I know, and a lot of experience leading up to a Master of Science, a Cognitive cognitive Science as well, and a very auspicious uh, career through the Feldenkrais, many aspects of Feldenkrais, from, um, from your experience in martial arts and dance, leading into uh, exploring body-mind centering and Alexander technique and various uh, research projects with dance and lecturing at university. Um, following your Feldenkrais training, you've ended up uh, really doing it, pretty much everything as far as Feldenkrais goes. So covering the, covering the spectrum and leading into, uh, leading into becoming an assistant trainer and a trainer and now educational director and having, having um, lectured and spoken on those, all those intersecting topics for many years, really since the 90s. We are just fascinated to to hear from you as a person and your journey into into the Feldenkrais world, which I believe has been, um, uh, you know, really, I won't say the the making of you. That's that's for you to say. But we're interested in, <laughs> yeah, we're really interested in just how you got started on this and. Really, all roads seem to lead to Feldenkrais in the Zorankovic world. So, um, <laughs> I don't know. Where would you like to, to start with that <laughs> entering yeah, yeah. in? Thank you. Uh, first of all, thanks for, having, and thanks for having me and asking me to be on the podcast. Um, that's nice. Lovely. Thank you. Um, you know, in hindsight, it all seems to lead to here, doesn't it? That's the advantage of hindsight. But, um, you know... If I'm going to answer the question truthfully, I think it all began at the age of 16 when I made the uh, decision to be a, a teacher. You know, we had one of those vocational days and someone came in and spoke and it was a teacher and this particular teacher was speaking about what they loved about teaching. And um, I think for the first time in my life, I thought, no, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Um, and the thing that I remember um, when enrolled in my teacher course was the, the first day presentation of the course director who said something like, good teachers change people's lives. And I remember sitting in the auditorium and I remember crying over that. So, so basically the roads that have led to Feldenkrais are a series of dead end roads that 
um, I, didn't, I discovered I really didn't want to teach in the educational system. I found that tremendously traumatic. Um, I wanted to be a martial arts teacher, but that also turned out to be a dead end because it started to get a little bit too violent. And then um, I then wanted to be a dance teacher. That's why I did my uh, dance degree. <laughs> Yes, I, I, sorry, I left out that bit about um, also having a professional dance career. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry. <laughs> and look, it, it was in that dance degree that actually finally started me on that little, little last road towards Feldenkrais. Um, I, I, you could call me silly or daring or courageous, but, you know, uh, starting out in dance training at the age of 23, um, mm, Maybe not such a good decision, but <laughs> it was uh, it was via there that I found my first ever somatic education practice in the work of Mabel Todd, which basically involves a lot of imagery work, lying down on the floor, not moving, and that made such tremendous differences to me in my in my training at that age that I decided instead of becoming a dance teacher, I would become a somatic educator. And then it was just a matter of finding which one I could do because at that stage in Australia, there were no trainings other than in Alexander technique, hence your mentioning my Alexander background. I did a lot of Alexander lessons until one day someone gave me an audio set of Frank Wildman's Intelligent Body series. It says, do this, you'd really like them. And I did what I... I did the naughty thing and I put them on my shelf and never did them until one day someone gave me a brochure saying there's a workshop and I did a five-day workshop with uh, one of my favorite teachers who's now passed away Dennis Larry yeah. and um, at the end of that workshop he told Moshe's famous story about living your unavowed dreams your vowed and unavowed dreams and damn it there I was crying again. <laughs> So it's like, okay, I got to do this. And that's how I got into the Feldenkrais training. Mm, it's very powerful, that story, that unavowed mm. dreams, like that resonates. Yeah, it's a fabulous story. And I know that what something that's intrigued me is something you began to do was how to integrate somatic education into contemporary dance um, practice. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I know, and from the, from reading just all the workshops and things you've done, it's even more extensive than even you've just said there. So, but um, we, we're really interested and curious as to how you would define Feldenkrais. You've covered so many aspects. Uh, how, it's a bit of a tricky question, but um, for people who haven't come across Feldenkrais before, who might be listening, um, yeah, we really feel we need to we need to just visit that a little bit. So sure, sure. How do you define Feldenkrais? <laughs> well, look, it all depends on who I'm talking to, right? Yes, um, yes. I remember doing I remember doing a workshop years and years ago. Um, it was run by the guild, and it was um, a person talking talking about presenting the method to the public. And she got us to play a game. Feldenkrais is like which animal? And 30 of us were in the room, and of course, I tend to lag behind. And when it got to my turn, I said, Feldenkrais is like an octopus. And they all went, oh! 
I said, no, 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 you don't understand. Have you seen how intelligent octopuses are, octopi are? How they can go from one tank to another. They don't even have a skeleton to manage gravity. And they can go from one environment to another. Do you know that octopus, octopi can fit themselves into any nook and cranny to suit whatever environment? Do you know that they're masters of changing their, 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 uh, their skin color? Well, this is what Feldenkrais is like. Feldenkrais can address so many aspects of human life. Why? Because it's, it's, it's fundamental. It's at that level of sensory motor understanding that underlies everything. Now, maybe for some people that doesn't make any sense, but it's about the sensation of things that Feldenkrais comes to the fore. Yeah? We know the world through our sensations. We know ourselves through our sensations. But... What's at the fore of our what's at the foreground of our attention? Not our sensations, but what we think we're seeing and feeling and touching. Yeah? And what the what the method invites us into, whether it's on a one-on-one -on -one basis or whether it's on a group basis, is entering into the world of sensations, pulling apart the curtain, going, oh, that's what's behind there. Yeah. So that's what it really has to, I think that's what this method really has to offer people. And um, for some people, it's a really fascinating journey. And for some people, it's a very unusual journey. Or, or so, confronting. Or oh, confronting yes. as well. Yeah, yeah, this inquiry into perception. Yes. So I think you were talking about originally you wanting to be a teacher and one of the ways you can define Feldenkrais is a really great experience for learning. Can you explain Feldenkrais and that ultimate sort of learning uh, experience? Yeah. Great. So, so let's, let's pick up, Heidi, on that word experience. The fundamental kind of experience is what you'd call first person or empirical experience. Go and see, go and touch, go and listen, go and feel. Yeah. yeah. So at the heart of any learning is first person direct experience. And then we have another form of learning, which is what you call you know, second, second order learning. You learn things that other people have learned before you. And of course, that is what a lot of social academic learning is about. Yes. yes. And then you have the third order learning. You learn about what other people have learned, who they have learned from, <laughs> you know. So what, what the Feldenkrais method is bringing us to, bringing us to is the very first order learning, looking, learning through the primacy of experience, which is, you'd think this is a, a, a new idea, but this is very much an old idea in the educational field, especially when you look at people like Dewey from the early 1900s, where experiential learning was um, pretty much at the forefront of things. Yeah. And Dewey and Matthias Alexander had a very close connection. So though Dewey understood oh. the nature mm. of Matthias Alexander's work, 
because of his particular philosophy of education. So do you think currently today we're sort of in this, um, you know, education has reached this sort of real intellectual heights, but we're sort of missing a gap and that maybe Feldenkrais could fill this void in some way? Yeah, 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 yeah. Look, um, there's a fantastic uh, journal that's put out by North America, the Feldenkrais Journal of North America. And in that journal, there's a great article by, uh, written by uh, a mathematician, uh, PhD in mathematics, but he's also graduated as a Feldenkrais teacher. And in that article, he talks about the learning of mathematics. And in particular, he talks about, there's this particular um, book on mathematics, which he wants to read through. And Sorry, after, Lauren, who was, what was his name? Oh, I can't remember the name, but um, <laughs> I can't remember the name. Oh. So we'll get to you later. The story. the story is far more interesting than the name. <laughs> but, um, and um, he says he wanted to read through this mathematics book. And he said to himself, I'll read through it in the same way that I do an awareness to movement lesson. When I feel tired, I'll rest. When I feel cognitively, you know, overwhelmed, I'll pause. And he got through the book. He got through the entirety of the book and he said, before this, before doing the training, he would not and could not do that. Mm. Wow. Mm. So I'm still intrigued about this, this learning and um, Feldenkrais <laughs> <laughs> model. <laughs> Because it's really, um, I think, in our society today, we're really about trying to almost mimic other people and get into this intellectual rather than really coming into our own self. Oh, okay. So it's, um, maybe you could speak then of your experience having you know, done your Feldenkrais training and how that has maybe mapped a little bit of your understanding of the world and your way forward. Sure. So I think there's two things there. Um, if I forget the second one, the, the, <laughs> oh, I've used on the way forward, please remind me. Sure. But the first one is the mapping between uh, second, second order knowledge and first person experience. So when I was doing martial arts, when I started martial arts training at the age of 16, I mean, I knew n nothing about you know, my body apart from elementary stuff. So I started to um, buy reference books on anatomy and uh, kinesiology, and I would use that information personally studied to apply it to my martial arts training. Oh. I started to research um, motor learning skill and, and things like that. And so um, the knowledge that society produces, you know, the knowledge that's readily available through books, I was literally applying to my own interests. And that, that really does make a difference. When you pick up something and the driver is your own interest, I want to know about this, yeah? Then yeah. that's a very different kind of learning to, I now have to study anatomy because I have to pass this subject to yes. get a particular qualification. Yeah, very, very different. So it's a bit like in an ATM, following that, that seam of curiosity and just going in your own little path rather than... 
That's right, that's right. So in awareness through movement, there is there is um, an unseen path that we are being guided down. We don't know where the path is going. We actually create our own path in the process of doing the lesson. And I, I'm free to stop at any moment along that path and look at the scenery, notice where I am in relationship to the world around me and so on and so on. So, um, that is very what you'd call powerful, a powerful learning scenario when I know I have the permissions and I have the skill set to do that. Yeah. Mm. So that's that's basically um, that's basically how I've studied whatever I've done. So um, how should I say this in a nice way to myself? <laughs> that is, uh, if ever I got interested in the topic. There was two. There were two things. I would buy every book or get every book I could on the topic, and I would literally immerse myself in it. That was the same for martial arts. It was the same for dance, and it certainly is the same for uh, somatic education and ditto for Feldenkrais. Mm. Um, and I think, um, I think this is now the second half of your question. When I finished my training program in 1991, I realized that there were so many fields that this method is drawing upon. And I won't mention them all because mm. there's so many of them. And to, to get a handle on this method that is beyond just the experiential, I needed to go and do some more study. So that's why the cognitive science. Um, and thankfully, when I had my interview, they said, what are you interested in? And I said, well, I'm interested in the relationship between human embodiment, cognition and learning. And they looked at me. They didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> because at that time, uh, in the 1990s, early 1990s, cognitive science was about you know, artificial intelligence and um. developing, um, developing computer, computer systems. No one was actually applying it at that time in Australia. To, uh, to human human beings and human learning. So luckily enough, I was given free reign to write on topics that I wanted to um, research. So beautiful. So I'm intrigued now, what did you find? <laughs> so um, in those days, they were doing very, very early studies. They'd just come up with um, um, brain imaging technology. And they were doing early studies on the relationship between uh, imagining and the effects of imagining on the system. And, you know, sure enough, the results were there. A person was entrained to do certain finger movements and the brain lit, lit up in a certain way. And then they imagined the same set of finger movements. Lo and behold, what do you think happened? <laughs> so, yeah. So that I researched um, in the areas of philosophy, I researched things like free will because the, the Feldenkrais method is really based on this notion that human beings have the capacity to make a choice that, uh, and that is about free will. Um, and at that time, free will was um, this epiphenomena. It didn't really exist. So in the, in the realm of free will, fantastic. And this is something um, that I found very curious. I brought into the cognitive science studies 
uh, particular particular people like Umberto Maturana, Francesca J. Varela, Heinz von Forster, and I spoke about these people to some of my lecturers and they didn't even know who they were. And this was Zoran in the what in the in the nineties? Nineteen ninety-three to nineteen ninety-five. Mm. So, so in a funny kind of a way, except it wasn't really funny, the kinds of cutting edge material that we were looking at in the Feldenkrais training had not actually reached mainstream cognitive science education. Mm. And how do you feel that has, uh, how do you feel that is now today? Because I know those texts and those people are now much more valued than, yeah. than perhaps they were in the 90s. And having gone through the whole um, introduction of the internet and age and the computer science, the burgeoning computer science, um, how do you feel now? That where are we with with that intersection between embodied learning and second order learning? How is that? Well, we're getting there, right? There's there's <laughs> there's, a, there's a far greater recognition of the import of what it is to be an animate embodied being. That what was considered before not really relevant that the mind was somehow there and not there and the body was unimportant, um, that's no longer the case. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I... this comes back to your earlier question, Heidi, about how this material situates in relationship to the Feldenkrais method. Yeah. There is this notion of being an animate, embodied being that is fundamental to all learning and all cognition, yeah? And to actually, how should I say it, unearth it, to bring it to the fore is no easy thing to study. So maybe, maybe that's a good place to maybe compare some other embodied learnings to um, the Feldenkrais method. Sure. What the differences are. Ooh. <laughs> Am I opening another can of worms here? Yeah. <laughs> you are. Look, um, rather than pointing, it's easier, uh, it's easier to point the similarities. All of the somatic education methods okay. are, are founded on this very same idea. Yep. How they differ is how they bring people into their engagement with that idea. Okay. Yep. So, um, Let's take one tack. One way of, of assisting a person to experience something new is by literally touching them and through your touch and handling, moving them whilst they're paying attention. Because when you think about it, if I've learned how to move myself, then I can only ever move myself in the way that I've learned. Sorry about that circularity. Does that make sense? So I keep yeah. on circling around in the same thing. Mm. How do we interrupt mm. that circling around? One way of interrupting it is for someone to move you and through the way they move you, they move you in such a way that you don't move yourself, a new experience emerges. Interesting, mm. right? So that's not way number one. 
Why number two is someone constructs a scenario that asks you to move in very specific ways. And that scenario, out of that scenario emerges a new way of moving. Okay, so that's number two. And number three, this is the third possibility, someone asks you to imagine things in a new way. Which doesn't, well, it does involve movement, right? Because this, is, this comes back to the cognitive science. As soon as you think there's muscularity involved in, in that, there's neural activity and muscularity. So, so then as I imagine something new, so too does a new experience begin to emerge in my, in my, in my being. So each of, the, each of the somatic education disciplines takes either one or several of these approaches. They either work hands-on with you to generate a new experience, or they work using very particular movement, movement improvisations or designs or compositions, and through that you get new experiences. Or the third option is, like in idiokinesis, they, they get you to imagine and that creates new experiences. That's, that's really lovely, Zoran. It sounds like you've encapsulated a very nice definition of Feldenkrais, including um, the hands-on with functional integration and the second scenario, I'm very much hearing the group class classes, awareness through movement, and of course, incorporating the, the imaginings and some of the one of the tactics in awareness through movement classes. And I think all of what you've been speaking about is, is in essence um, how to, or just sort of flushing out what it is to be a human being, really. It sounds like your inquiry has, has come from there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, that, 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 that triple way of thinking came out of having being asked to design a course for a particular um, physical education institute here in Sydney uh, that has a dance degree in it. And the, the course coordinator wanted me to design a course that any semantic educator could come in and teach and it didn't have any particular allegiance to any particular approach, but anybody coming in could teach the curriculum from their approach. So that's why I took a really close look at the, uh, at the, at the methodologies that were used and tried to categorize the methodologies. And these were the three categories that I eventually came up with. Mm. Mm. And um, successful, I think. Our last podcast was with Molly Tipping and uh -huh. Bridget Cosgrove. And Molly did mention, too, that she's currently working in that, in that area of somatic education in dance. So I know your work continues. <laughs> there. Um, I, I just wondered, you know, in terms of the, the training, whether with your, all that background in cognitive science, how that informs you as a, as now an educational director, and I'm sure hugely, but the different types of learning methods employed in the training probably 
is it would be interesting for people to to know what how a training actually takes place and yeah what's involved what sort of learning methods what happens in a training program okay okay another big question okay so, <laughs> so uh, in a training program it's a it, it's a first of all a very much an experiential process now we People need to know that uh, the guy who invented this method, uh, Moshe Feldenkrais, was uh, quite a, a big creator of, uh, of awareness through movement lessons. So there's a, a huge repertoire of lessons. And out of that repertoire of lessons, certain lessons are, are put together and, uh, you know, and are used in the training program to help people understand how it is to do a lesson and more importantly how to engage in the practice of doing awareness through movement the things that you bring to doing awareness through movement which of course the hope is that that's what you continue to do for yourself when you graduate from a training and then what you understand to help other people with as you lead them through awareness through uh, lessons after you graduate. So very much an experiential approach to start with. Now, mixed in with that is um, what you'd call social learning, learning from one another, which is, which is really important because this is how we this is how we learned to start with we learned through social engagement first of all with our parents then our siblings then our peers then other kids in the class then with teachers so this notion of oh we just did this what did you what did you feel oh oh i didn't feel that oh that's okay but then not invalidating what another person felt but actually listening to it and go Oh, that's a possibility too. That's interesting. Then also sharing um, through that social engagement with your peers, sharing your other fields of knowledge, because we all come to these training programs and to everything that we do through our history of um, own professional knowledge. So we bring this to the fore. So social engagement, learning through social engagement. Um, Learning from, from by being guided by the the trainer or whoever's leading the group. Okay, that's very particular. That's usually a guidance towards you know steer more along this way, a little bit less that way. Yeah. Um, then there's the kind of learning that we we're talking about earlier, which is the second order learning to do readings. You know, it's not like um, academic learning is, no, we don't do academic learning in the Felder Coast trainings. Of course you do. Of course you do. Um, and matter of fact, this is where, this is where initial guidance is really important. So that the, the trainer or the educational director provides you with materials that, that starts to guide you in certain ways. And then hopefully that expands your field you know, field of interest, and then you go into that direction. So it's it's quite a it's quite a diversity of different learning styles. But the main one 
is learning through doing, which is experiential learning. Mm. Can you, it's, what do you think? <laughs> it, it, it sounds really complex from the point of view of, of, of um, putting together such a program and, um, and then which you do and then having to take into account the changes that take place in having to deliver the program in different ways. Um, yeah, we're interested in how you develop yourself and find the resources within yourself to modify and change and come up with all the varying different experiences that you do offer us in the training. Yeah. Um, well, um, I said earlier that as peers in a, in a training program, you learn through a lot through social interaction. The same, the same happens after a training program as I interact with my peers, I continue learning. And of course, m my peers are also my books <laughs> because I, I, learn, I learn from people uh, in those books as well. But fundamentally, for me to guide you in the training program, I have to understand the material that Feldenkrais developed which means continuing to do his lessons, uh, continuing to practice uh, teaching, uh, teaching groups and teaching individuals, learning from my experience and bringing that into the room, and then also learning recursively again and again from working in training programs. Oh, that worked that time. Maybe it'll work again. Oh, that's not working again. Let's try something different which is very much sounding like doing an awareness from removal lesson. <laughs> which you try one thing one way and go, oh, you know, that didn't quite work. Let's try it another way. So um, uh, much to the lament of my partner who says to me, can't you just do it the way you did it before? And the answer is always, mm, no, can't do that. <laughs> so can, then, can you define then, or it's probably again, hard to break down but can you see how for example the training you did has compared to the training sure. we're now doing sure 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 so in 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 the training that i did which is was the the first melbourne-based training it was the third in australia ran from 88 to 91 we did so the similarities first, we did a lot of awareness through movement mm. and then we did touching, touching and handling practice. Uh, were there any readings required? Mm, no. Okay. Was there much organized group interaction in the first three years? No. However, Was there a diversity of staff with different points of view? Yes. Is that the same now in current training programs? Yes. Yeah. So, so that carry-on of diversity of different views, uh, training, uh, training faculty who have different ways of approaching the method, that's still there. And that's there for a really good reason because there's multiple... You keep on wanting, you do keep on doing this gesture, Heidi, with your hand, <laughs> wanting to contain it. And of course, exactly. it keeps on bursting out, and you bring it back, you know, don't, don't. So, um, 
one of the one of the foundations that this method is built upon, and this comes directly from um, from Feldenkrais's way of studying, was to understand something from multiple perspectives, mm. so that with each perspective a new dimension comes out. Yeah. So this is something that's carried through with the trainings. Yes. Um, group group. Uh, group work has been used a lot more and also um, the number of staff taking an active role in the room has changed. Um, I know when I trained, the, the person who had the mic had the floor and the person who had the mic most of the time was the trainer. So um, yeah. that's also changed a little bit over time. So there's been there's been development. There's been sort of like a, a spreading out of the learning context in the room. It just wasn't one person with a mic and everybody just doing. Yeah. I think I think we're finding where we are experiencing that wonderful cross pollination of ideas and and it's very fruitful ground for thinking and for sensing and doing. So it's a really enjoyable process for the <laughs> training. Um, I, I just wonder, the people who come into Feldenkrais training, uh, some people come in for, from a personal growth perspective and others from the point of view that of wanting to actually become a practitioner. Some have more or less experience, some have no experience before coming into the training. Um, what do you think people gain out of, out of uh, Feldenkrais training? You know, do you see them, the people come into the training and do you, what, what differences do you perceive in people as they go through this process? Look, um, people that come into a training are pretty much self-selected. You know, they've, they've chosen to be there for whatever reason, like you were saying, Libby. They, they choose their reasons. Um, maybe one way I can respond to that is in a training program, as part of the training program, um, people are given one-on-one -on -one lessons. And... I know what I usually ask when I when someone comes to see me for one-on-one -on -one lesson. I said, "What are you interested in? What would you like from this lesson?" Yeah. Now, in the beginning, most people go, "Oh, you know, oh that hurts over here, and this hurts over there, and oh look, I've got this something wrong with my foot down there." And that's usually the stories that people that that's what will people will offer at the beginning. As people shift through the training, as the, you know, as they go through year one, year two, year three, let's scoot to year four, the requests start to change. Yeah. You know, I've been having this difficulty at work. You know, every time my boss asks me for something, I seem to respond in the same way all the time. Can we work with something like that? Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, um, I can't seem to keep my focus for a long enough. So the topics start to change, mm. which indicates to me there's been some sort of shift. Now, is that across the board with everybody in the training? No. Some people start like that mm. and they just stay like that. And some people start like that but then they get injured, like myself. So I know in my own training program, in the first 
in the first segment, I was a healthy, vigorous dancer, you know, I could do anything. And then in, the, in between that segment and the next, I had a major back injury, which, and my interests got very, very different then. So it's not, it's not a, what you'd call a linear path. You know? mm. There's mm. no linear progression from one place to another. But what does happen for many, many people, I can't say everybody, is that what they become interested in expands or changes tack. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So the learnings are um, much more than physical. Yes. Uh, the dimensions of emotional learning yes. and cognitive learning as you weave a matrix in front of us, experiential and, and uh, reading and understanding Moshe Feldenkrais's texts, it, it becomes a, a real pastiche. And I think cross-pollination of, of people in the room tends to widen our, widen our view, widen our perspective. So it's kind yeah. of like a metaphor for Feldenkrais in yeah. a way. Yeah, so, mm. so my initial interest for myself getting into the training program was, okay, is there a way of... Um, revolutionizing dance technique, the way dance technique is taught. You know, that was, I was pretty much interested in the movement aspect. Of course, being a, a, a philosopher at heart, there was that aspect, but it was really the movement. But then as I went through, um, that perspective changed. And that also happened when I was doing the research on integrating uh, somatic education practices into dance training a lot of the dancers started to report back to me that it wasn't the movement that was changing, but their sense of moving and their sense of being present in themselves and with the audience. So, so it's not only in the training that you see this change happening within individuals, but with any group that practices this for a while, things start to change from the movement to different perspective. Mm. And how, how um, I'm wondering whether you can speak to that process happening for people who are doing awareness through movement classes. We've spoken about people learning in the training and doing ATM classes, but what about the person coming to an awareness through movement lesson? You know, what, what, are, what are some of the, the changes and how quickly can they perceive changes happening? Well, mm. So once again, uh, those individuals are self-select. The changes that people experience are the changes that they're looking for. Mm. <laughs> Sounds very profound. <laughs> <laughs> well, so so this is this is important um, as a, as a facilitator in an awareness to movement class. How I frame the, the, the lesson can really uh, change the direction in which the lesson goes. How I direct people's attention, the kinds of stories I tell. Too much of that, and they're just getting my, my shtick, my take on things. Yeah. So how do, how do I balance that so that people can travel through, through the lesson on their own and have a little bit of a room to actually 
look for what they want to look for, while at the same time getting a sense that there is something else to be on the lookout for, but not being overwhelmed with that. Does that, does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it sounds like an art and a craft and a science. Or... Craft first, art maybe. Okay. <laughs> if I'm artful, that's very good. I'm an artist, yeah. Um, but, but, but definitely a craft first. But um, one, one thing I, I've learned to say to people is um, when you walk into the class, you might be looking for something specific, something that you really want to learn, something that you really want to take care of, something that you're really desiring. Yeah. Great. When you start the lesson, take that and put it off to one side yeah. and simply do the lesson. And the lesson's over. Oh, what was that that I was looking for? Now, let me look at that again from the perspective of the experiences that I've had in this lesson. And maybe what you desired and what you wanted has a different flavor or a different look about it now. Yeah. So there's what you want. Then there's the engagement, the experience. And then there's the re-engagement with what you want. That's a beautiful way to frame it. I think that, and we've talked about in our training how the learning, um, real learning doesn't happen just sort of this nice little growth rate. There's this <laughs> exaggerated, <laughs> we're all going up and down here, that um, there's this real perturbations all throughout it. Can you speak to that as well? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah, uh, learning is not linear. Yeah. Um, in the learning of anything, the final thing that you'll end up knowing is not what you're actually practicing. Yeah? What you're actually practicing is everything else other than that. So mm -hmm. it's actually a construction. Sorry, it's a little bit of a Pac-Man going on here. It's your <laughs> octopus back. Let me emphasize the opening. You know? It's more than, it's, it's a construction it's... process. Yes. Yeah, learning is a construction process. And it's also a process of elaboration. So when you're constructing something, let's say let's say you're modeling, you're making a model. Sometimes you'll add clay, sometimes you'll scrape it away. And literally, as you as you go more and more into this sculptural model, you'll end up with something that you feel satisfied with. Mm. So awareness through movement is like sculpting clay. You have this. You're going through and you're feeling the clay and you're sculpting it and you're looking at it and go, oh, yeah, now that's that's possible. Let's do that. And all learning's like that. You know, we, we don't learn the thing that we're practicing right now, except in a very few, no, not even in mathematics, you know, one plus one equals two. Well, actually, one plus one equals the square root of four and equals <laughs> the five minus three. Uh, yeah, so but you don't find that out till later. But yeah. first of all, what are we taught? One plus one equals two. Yeah, yeah. So then he's never, and then there's, then there's that human quality, Heidi. It's called forgetting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we forget. 
because something something hasn't embedded or hasn't uh, networked thoroughly through us, and so we forget. Or uh, another way of talking about it is we don't conserve. So one way of thinking. Uh, so I've had this new experience, right? And experience is not a learning. Let's make this clear. Okay. Experiencing something is not learning. Learning, uh, learning is something different. So I experience something and I like it. I like the feeling of it, or I, I, you know. So how will I, how will I resurrect, or how will I continue to recreate that experience? Well, I have to conserve something, to that keeps on recreating that. But unless, unless I make some sort of an attempt to conserve that. Um, it'll be just an experience that wafts away like the taste of fresh strawberry jam on scone, right? It just goes away. Um, it might go away to a lesser extent. It might not go away with some people. This is the unpredictable factor. Mm. Mm. So the Feldenkrais method, um, learning is integral in the Feldenkrais method, isn't mm. it? Yes. It's uh, and that's your expertise is really showing showing through here. <laughs> um, I'm trying. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm trying not to do the uh, the the philosopher take on what do you mean by learning? You know? Yes. Yeah. I was <laughs> I was trying not to ask that question <laughs> because okay. it's too broad. <laughs> it's too broad. But um, yeah. In in terms of um, just as a person going through the training you know, thinking about the skills and, and competencies, you know, how do you balance that? How do you, how do you present a training balancing the skills and competencies that we need as practitioners with, I suppose, the, the um, first person experience of learning and what we might take from that in our own personal lives? How do you balance that? So I'll put up two fingers, right? Finger number one, teacher. Finger number two, student, right? I could use the competency model like that. Teacher, observe student. Oh, student can do it. Student's competent. Done. Does the student know they're competent? Mm. How does the student know they're competent? Uh, Unless the student feels that they're competent, unless they have some sense that I'm competent, they'll feel un not confident. So it's a two-way process. Um, in you know, it's not only the teacher that needs to recognise competence in the student, but the student needs to recognise competence in themselves and in their peers. So, how is it that we? in a training room can understand what it is that we're exploring and have a sense of when we're getting a, an initial, um, I'm going to use a, a tactile metaphor here, getting an initial grasp on it, you know, the first hands-on, and when do we know when our hands are right in there mixing the bowl, and you know, yes, well, now we're making cake, and, I'm, and then you make the cake. And, it's there, and you go, I can make cake. Look, my hands are all dirty. <laughs> so when you get your hands dirty, 
whatever that metaphor means to you, you know that you can do something. And that's called doing, right? It's a lot of doing. Yeah. See, um, one of the things I need to be careful of is not mistaking cognitive understanding for ability to do. Yes. Mm. In mm. myself first, yes. <laughs> uh, and that's been quite a journey of uh, presenting an idea and finding ways of bringing that idea into some palpable, doable, feelable realm where it's understood through experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the same thing here. Mm. So we've uh, talked. That, that is a very Feldenkraisian tradition. Yes. Mm. Uh, because Feldenkrais himself was very much an engineer. His skill was to take to take an idea and make something really usable out of it. Mm. Really, what he would call concrete. I don't like the idea of concrete, but it, yeah. So the same thing. And this comes back to the initial discussion about embodiment. Yeah, most of our conceptual understanding finds its home, finds its roots in sensory motor experience. That's why the importance of being an animated being and being a fleshy embodied being. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So we've in that we've talked about the your prior experiences with Feldenkrais, and we've had a really interesting training <laughs> this way due to COVID. So, what do you hope, and what do you think the future of the Feldenkrais training might be? Well, we learn through experience, as I've been saying. So here's a here's a new medium, and you know, thankfully. COVID, the COVID virus was quite gracious enough not to impact on our society until we had a sufficient technology. And then it said, okay, I've got sufficient technology, now I can do But look, um, so I've been talking about the experiential and I've been talking about the conceptual and the balance between the two. I've been talking about the social interaction and I've been talking about teacher facilitation. So here we have a training process that has multiple layers and multiple ways of interacting. Can such a training process be, be uh, um, presented differently through different mediums? Yes, of course it can be. And the selection of the medium through which to deliver that kind of knowledge and those kinds of experiences, that's important. Mm. I have to choose the appropriate medium. Mm. So trying to, trying to do something that is experiential, that involves teacher-student interaction through touch, that's crazy through a, an electronic medium. It's not possible. Awareness through movement lessons, no problem, but not all the time. Because yeah. there is, there is, um, 
call me old-fashioned or call me a grumpy old man. I don't know what you want to call me. There is something about a group of individuals being in a room together with, without an intervening uh, medium that just has an effect around it because conversations are readily available. The, the voice sounds different. People move around each other in space. It's a very different thing. But then again, not, not every lesson has to be done like that. Mm. So the way forward is to look at how, how these different aspects of a training can be, uh, can be offered and still keep the integrity of the learning intact. And th that's, um, that's, that's important to keep the integrity of the learning scenario intact. That sounds to me very much like um, perhaps what Moshe would have or, or could have foreseen because in all the group lessons that he taught, there has to have been something uh, for, for the Feldenkrais method to exist today. There have, has to be something in those group lessons as well as the one-on-one -on -one functional integration sessions uh, to have the legacy of the Feldenkrais method still exist now. So, yeah. So how do you see that in the... In, in the future, because we have these other modalities available to us online now, and how do you think Moshe would be would be utilising this? It's a. Let me get my Ouija board. Just a second. <laughs> we can't. It's not no, possible no, 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 to, no, no, um, to okay. answer, but we have to muse about it. Seeing yeah, as okay. we're so, not here, um, <laughs> we are. I can muse about it. So uh, yeah, my. <laughs> I think early on, you mentioned that I, my first training was in social science. So it was, um, my first training was a historian. So I'm a, a trained historian and a political philosopher. So looking, looking at how trainings have been offered, look, um, taking the historical examples of Moshe Feldenkrais. So the first one was, he took an apprentice called Mia Siegel who had um, Alexander training. And at that time, Feldenkrais was looking for someone to help him uh, in his work because he had a lot of people to see. So he said, look, there's a room, there's a table, there's a stool, go and, go and work with people. Now, Mia Siegel being Mia Siegel said, look, do you mind if I just sat and watched you? And she says she learned a lot from watching him. So that was the first education model, a t a, an apprenticeship model. The second model was with a group of 13 students that had been doing his awareness to movement classes for something like 13 years. Yeah. Now with that group, he taught them very differently. They would gather in a room, he would do a lesson with a member of the public in front of them. When that person had gone, he would talk about the lesson. They would practice with each other and they would practice with him. They didn't study any awareness through movement whatsoever. Interesting, right? Then there comes a whole bunch of public workshops. 
one of which was in Esalen, where he, he authorized people to teach awareness through movement after you know, several weeks of doing awareness through movement lessons. Now, all of these have historical circumstances to them. But his next, his next official training was a training that he taught awareness to movement and one-on-one -on -one functional integration work over a three or four year, three year period. And that's become the model. Now there's also historical circumstances to that. The training was nine weeks each year in duration. Why? Because he had to travel from Israel and live in the United States. Now, could that have been different if he had been living now? Yes, it could have been different. And the final one, the final model was very much like the one before, where there was going to be a combination of awareness through movement and functional integration. Um, and could that have been different? Yes, it could have been different. But there wasn't such a thing as stable internet. There wasn't even internet. Yeah. But he was very much in favor of using the technology at the hand. Why? Because he's an engineer. He's, he, he likes that. He, he thinks that things can be orally transmitted. And he used that technology for delivering his, um, offering his awareness through lessons to the public. So. He was not shy about recording lessons and broadcasting them for the general public to do without his even having an eye on them. Mm -hmm. Why? Because he had a tremendous faith that the lessons were, I won't say simple, but approachable enough for people not to harm themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great. That's given us a really good insight into how he started and how really the environment um, and the circumstances played a, a part of how it was created. Always, always. So this is, this is really, circumstances always play a role in how things come about. Yeah? That's why creating the, for the integrity of the training to be, uh, to be there, the circumstances have to be as appropriate as possible, as best as we can make them. Yeah. You know? mm. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I think it's been great. I'm just really in, in, interested in the whole, what we've talked about and we've, you've overviewed the training nicely, but you also gave, I love this idea of the um, academia and embodied learning model that you sort of have, was able to present to us and, they can work beautifully together and we can really become our own self-directed learner. We can become that octopus that really, you know, goes into intelligent, adaptable, all ready for possibilities. You know, these little, our own little superheroes. So thank you, Zora. And I really, um, <laughs> given us new insight as well. So thank you very much for that. I really appreciate it. So we'll um, end the podcast there, but we just want to remind people that we've um, got our last five podcasts. This is our last one for this year. And that if you want to go and have a look and look into anxiety, contemplative practice, organizing principles of movement, or even Feldenkrais as a business, then go back through our previous podcasts. Next year, we've got lined up a Melbourne practitioner who's very experienced called 
Kate Tremlett and she'll have one of her long time clients who's going to be with her as well and who really has valued the experience. So we're really going to get into the conversation of what the Feldenkrais method is in this conversation. Um, so if people are interested in keeping touch or getting contact with Zoran, then he's at mindfulactionstudios.com and you can have a look there. Um, if you want to get in, if you're interested in people like us, Libby and I and Dale, and um, want to talk more about the training and our experience, then get in touch with us. Um, go Facebook or on Twitter. But thanks again, Zoran. That was interesting and um, insightful. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you.